Welcome to the Phase World Podcast, engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. Hi, everyone. This is part two of my conversation with Steven Shapiro in episode number five of the Phase World Podcast. If you haven't listened to part one in episode four, I encourage you to do so. But if you happen to feel like a rebel today, by all means, keep listening. I'm thrilled to have Steven on my podcast. Today, he talks about tips and tactics on engaging audience from different backgrounds and interests. Why visceral reaction is the key engaging audience of any kind. Contrary to popular belief, visceral reaction do not happen in intellectual conversations. Steven breaks the statement down further to logos, ethos, and pathos. I also asked Steven, how many of the questions today overlap with those from editors and reporters? And by the way, what do you wish people would ask you? Steven will fill you in on his next and upcoming book on the topic of performance paradox. Then on a related subject, how do you get out of your own way? So tune in, join me in this amazing journey with my heroes. This, this is about to become my favorite topic now. The fact that we create solutions, we create the whole story around, we curate stories around ourselves to prove what we know. Yes. And stay as far as we can from what we don't know. Yes. And, you know, I just had this like a little, I feel like a storm in my mind just now that even following my own career path is because I believe certain things, certain attributes of myself um, either make myself look good. Um, because this is something I've been doing for so long. I feel like 70 years is a long time and I talk to people who are more experienced like, come on, you're just a baby. And, and um, podcasts in particular, this has been an area I feel like maybe I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm so new, I shouldn't be doing this. So what if I turn around and just um, kind of say, I'm going to start a project. I have no idea where it's going to go. And very likely I have no listeners and I will fail. But what if I give it a shot and kind of, disapprove but potentially to prove myself in, in certain areas I didn't know even exist and and one thing that um, in terms of speaking and just interviewing you how easy it is to set up the conversation and what I've witnessed so far and how you kind of can so easily navigate around uh, the conversation and to uh, really address certain issues head-on and totally not staying at the surface level um, I was wondering if you could give some um, tips on speaking in general and you know I pick up this book from Barnes and Noble and um, it's called it's not about what you say it's what people hear and you know I was like oh that's that's really insightful but that's an area I struggle with and I tend to think of myself as a very pretty pretty straightforward um, you know blunt person and sometimes in a in a meeting as you know or having a conversation I just want to try to get to the point I don't want to dance around it yeah. um, but people can really turn on you and I you know, all of us have seven, eight meetings, more meetings than the time we have to do work. What are some of, um, you know, your advice on speaking to a large crowd or possibly to seven, eight people um, with senior executives? Um, you know, we talk about emotional engagement, but are there any specific words that you tend to, uh, you tend to use or how, what are the cues, the visual cues or physical, um, you know, body, um, 
changes that you witness too. So if I were to write a book, it'd be it's not what you say, it's what they feel. Because I, you know, what they hear is one thing, but I, you know, hearing doesn't mean that it actually gets into the brain and gets processed properly in a way that they're going to experience it viscerally. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking for visceral reactions to people, and visceral reactions do not happen through intellectual conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aristotle said ethos, pathos, logos, which is credibility, empathy, logic. And if we think about how we tend to speak, we tend to talk about that last part, that logos, that logic. Mm -hmm. And we will tell you the answer. And we'll just, but until I feel an emotional connection to the topic at hand, Mm -hmm. it's not going to be processed by the brain. So the ethos, again, is that credibility, which is as a speaker, Mm -hmm. we always have somebody introduce us. I don't introduce myself. Mm-hmm. Because there's more credibility when a person who has respect from the audience, the CEO of a company, mm-hmm. introduces me. Well, if the CEO likes me and introduces me, that by transference means that the audience is, gives me some level of credibility. So they read the, you know, the, the, the introduction. That's the ethos. But then I move into pathos, which is I want to build an emotional connection with people. I don't give them the answers. I give them either stories mm-hmm. that they can relate to. Um, and these are stories of companies that have maybe done the same thing that they've done and had a sense of frustration. So it's not happy stories. They're actually, we, we, you know, a lot of times we'll connect over the frustrations mm-hmm. that we have. So I make sure that we talk about the pain. You know, I want to be the aspirin for someone's pain. And I first need to be able to say to people, hey, I understand your pain. Mm-hmm. I understand how you feel. Mm-hmm. And once I do that, which is the pathos, that empathy, then I can move into the logic. Hey, you know, here's the picture that I painted. Uh, so if I give a speech, for example, when I when I talk about uh, don't think outside the box, find a better box. I don't start off and say the next piece we're going to talk about is how we ask better questions. Don't think outside the box, find a better box. Here's five examples. <laughs> what I do instead is when we get into the section, I say think back to April twentieth, two thousand and ten. On that day, the Deepwater Horizon oil rig exploded. And I just sort of tell the story. They can relate to it. And I say, you know, we've got 123,000 suggestions. How many of those do you think? And again, this is a, I can even ask questions which are rhetorical. I don't expect them to answer verbally, but I want them to answer it mentally. So like of the 123,000 questions, how many do you think were deemed as having any value at all whatsoever? And I pause. Mm-hmm. Even if nobody says anything, which usually somebody does, but even if nobody says anything, they've in their mind formulated an answer, mm-hmm. which means they're now not just listening to me, but they're actually participating with me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, sometimes we can do even very simple things to engage the audience that way. Pause, ask them a question. Or when I tell a certain story, uh, and it's amazing because I used to tell it one way and then I added one sentence which totally changed the reaction that people had. In the middle of the story, which was about me and someone else, mm-hmm. won't bore people with the details of the story, if I continue the story with just me and that other person, it's like watching a movie. Mm-hmm. And then we get to this point and there's a very awkward point in the conversation that I have with this other person where I ask them to do something which would be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And instead of just telling the story, I stop and I look at the audience and say, so what would you do if you were in that situation? What would you do if you were done? What would be going through your head? Now again, they're not just listening, 
They're on the stage. They're now actually in that other person's shoes, experiencing what that other person was experiencing. Totally different. Mm-hmm. So I guess my my point on all of this is coming back to what I said in the beginning is it's not what they hear, mm-hmm. it's what they feel. Mm-hmm. And you want them to feel things at a deep, visceral level. This is not intellectual. And we need to break through the, the cold, cognitive, logical aspect of the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, recognize that some people, you have to give them that at some point, especially if they're very analytical, mm-hmm. you have to give them the facts and the data. Otherwise, they're going to be like, this is too fluffy, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. So you need to recognize that an audience is made up of people with different backgrounds, different Mm -hmm. styles, different interests, and you have to cater to all of them, just like marketing has to cater to everyone. Every presentation, unless you know that every person in the company is like 100% fact-driven, in that situation, okay, you can craft a presentation that still has some emotion but gets to the facts pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. If it's a broad group, you don't want to lose anybody, so you have to time it just right. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I think it's it's that emotional connection, no matter what style you are, is very important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that not only that's relevant to an audience of three thousand, but um, you know, even for me, every meeting for many of the people I know, speak to six, seven people, the designers, the user experience people, the developer, everybody is driven on uh, something else and come from a very different background, upbringing. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe perhaps the designer wants to focus on something that's pixel perfect, but the developer is thinking that's less important, the functionalities and UX completely different domain. So in order to relate to people, um, how do you quickly identify, or could you identify, or should you care where they come from and, um, and, and to sort of steer your conversation? And, and I know that I'm kind of drilling in really deep right now. It's, it's a you know, personally, it's something I always struggle with. And I try to relate to people, have, you know, conversations with them, not just at meetings, understand why are they here, where they're trying no. to achieve career-wise at this company, not just my project. Do you think that's something that, do you think that helps or do you think I'm missing something that's more fundamental? Well, I think that helps. I mean, if I have an audience of 3,000, I'm not going to know all 3,000 people. It's just not okay. possible. Mm-hmm. Uh I will say that I can understand the mindset of the industry mm-hmm. because especially if it's for a company, companies have cultures and you can sort of pick the culture, you know, even within companies, there are subcultures, mm-hmm. you know, the manufacturing and engineering and the, those people are going to have one culture, mm-hmm. which might be different than the marketing and the sales and the creatives. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm giving a speech to an engineering company, mm-hmm to their sales and marketing department, it will be a different speech mm-hmm. than if I'm giving uh, a speech to the same company to their product development people. Mm-hmm. Because scientists want to hear different types of problems solved and they want to hear information in different ways. So I may not be able to know all the people in the audience, but I can hypothesize mm-hmm. You know who's going to be in the audience, and that's what you know we do before every speech. Is we'll talk to some people, we'll get a sense of you know talk from a half to talk to a half dozen different executives to say, well, what are the types of issues that you're facing? What is it like? And so, mm-hmm. I know before I get in there, mm-hmm. what kinds of responses I will get to what kinds of information, mm-hmm. uh, 
And I think that's important because if I go in there and I just start doing something which is totally off the wall and wacky, mm -hmm. and it's a bunch of quote unquote left brainers uh, who just want logic, mm -hmm. they're going to be very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So I need to connect with them. Uh, if it's a diverse group, like I do these events where you just have no idea because there's you know, 2,000 people from 500 different companies. Mm -hmm. In that case, I just put on what I think is the best show I could possibly put on mm -hmm. uh, and cover information I think will be of value to engineers and to uh, chemists and to marketing and to technology and to whatever. And mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's all you can do. Yeah, I'm very satisfied with my question. Very much so. And, you know, jumping uh, onto the next topic... Um, feel a little ADD here, but everything is yeah. all connected. Uh, is you've been interviewed, you've, you've spoken at all these different venues, uh, you've been uh, on the Success Magazine recently and also two years ago. People have approached you for a set of questions I can imagine reporters, editors, whatnot um, will show up. So, and I was wondering how much, just personally, how many of those questions kind of overlap with what we just talked about? Uh, that's part one. And part two is really what are some of the questions that you wish people would ask you that hmm. do not overlap? You know, I've been answering these 13 questions for 10 years now. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, woo. So <laughs> I would say the overlap with what we've talked about today is actually relatively low, but the reason is most of the time I'm being asked as an innovation expert. So I'm not, I'm not being asked questions as an entrepreneur or sometimes as a speaker so if I'm if I'm talking to you know uh, somebody about the speaking profession mm -hmm. there might be more overlap there mm -hmm. but most of the time when I'm, I'm interviewed and I have conversations it's almost always in one form or another about my innovation background mm -hmm. so we didn't really talk that that much about it mm -hmm. uh, so yeah the, so these are different questions now the questions I wish people would ask Hard to say. Maybe I'll ask. A, maybe I'll, I'll reframe it and say not the questions I wish people asked, but what do I think might be some of the most valuable questions mm -hmm. for people, which is different than what I want necessarily people to ask. Because sometimes the most valuable <laughs> questions are the ones that are really uncomfortable. Oh, uh, indeed. So I would say, and I'm not sure it's a question, but you know, is it one of the things which. I find really fascinating. This is sort of just being very transparent here is that, you know, people look at me and I've got books and I've, you know, I've got, uh, I'm on magazines. I was just on uh, USA Network on a TV show last week and blah, blah, blah. And so people look at that and say, wow, you're, you know, you're successful and, you know, you're blah and all. And so the outside world sees me in many cases differently than I see myself. Mm -hmm. And one of the things which I'm always fascinated by, and I've suffered from this from the beginning of time, I've gotten a lot better as time goes on, but I think it's something which people, you know, would be valuable for people to know is that there's something called the imposter syndrome. And the imposter syndrome is basically where, uh, it, from my perspective, where the outside world, there's a disconnect between how the outside world sees you and how you see yourself. And I think that's actually very common, but we don't want to admit it. Because when I actually told a group of fellow speakers, some who are like the at the upper echelon of their career, and I said, you know, 
this is you know where what I've been struggling with. This was several years ago, and and I mean people were in tears because they're like, oh my god, I have it too. And you're like, what? <laughs> and so I, I think what people need to understand is that our inside dialogues are can be. I mean, so you have people who are delusional, and you have people who are realistic, and then you have people who are. Uh, I think the the majority are people just you know don't have as good of a valuation of themselves as others see them. And I actually saw this, quick tangent, when I was at Accenture, uh, we put a bunch of our executives through Stephen Covey's Principal Center of Leadership. And part of that is to do a 360-degree-ish sort of feedback. You evaluate yourself on a bunch of different parameters. You have your peers rate you, and then you have your bosses rate you. And across, like, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, the data is irrefutable. You will always evaluate yourself the lowest, your peers will evaluate you the next, and your boss will always evaluate you the best. And that's just sort of an interesting dichotomy that I don't know, I don't know if it's valuable, but I, for me it's been very valuable because when you have it and you hold on to it and it becomes a big deal, you're always waiting for somebody to think, figure out that you're a fraud. Or that you're making this up, or that it's not real, or somebody else is better, or whatever it is. And um, when you just sort of say, you know, that, mm-hmm. when you can just sort of like let go of that mm-hmm. and just recognize it's just a natural human belief that we have, mm-hmm. it takes so much pressure off. And then you actually perform better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, which comes to the next question, uh, which is where my next book is on, which is called The Performance Paradox. And the Performance Paradox. Mm-hmm. Is basically what I found is that paradoxically, the harder we work, the less likely we are to get the results we want. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not to say we can't, work, we don't want to work hard, but there is a point where there is not only diminishing returns, mm-hmm. there's actually negative returns. If we work harder, we work, we get less results. And so, mm-hmm. simple example: if you think about a salesperson who's really trying hard to make the sale because they're focused on the number, mm-hmm. we've shown they will sell less than a person who is there to serve the customer, mm-hmm. to be there to take care of someone. They will sell more by not trying to sell more. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, you know, I see entrepreneurs and I see consultants and I see people in work and they're busting their butts and they never step back and they say, what am I really doing? Mm-hmm. Why am I doing it? I mean, we hear in companies the mantra, uh, do more with less. Mm-hmm. Basically, that, basically what that means is we're gonna cut the budget and we're going to give you twice as much work. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is a way of killing morale and killing organizations. I like to look at it as, how do I do less and get more? How do I figure out what is the sweet spot of the right amount of work that unleashes the greatest amount of value? How do I move from a linear return on my investment to an exponential return on my investment? Mm-hmm. And so I think all of that is you know, related. The performance paradox relates to the imposter syndrome because... If we feel like an imposter, we're going to try really, really hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, a buddy of mine, he, uh, I always thought he was the smartest guy I'd ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. And he just got degree after degree after degree. And I asked him, and I said, and I said to him one day, I said, you are probably the smartest person I know. Mm-hmm. And he had this really strange look on his face. He says, wow, that's not how I feel. Mm-hmm. The reason why I keep getting degrees is because I feel stupid. Mm-hmm. And we all have that version of it. And I think the more we try to convince the world we are something we don't believe ourselves to be, the harder it is, the lower returns, 
and it just leads to dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in reading this book. When is it going to be released? <laughs> uh, the bigger question is, when is it going to be written? <laughs> so yes, I'm, I'm, I'm working on the book right now. Uh, it could be a long time before it's available, or it'll be quick. I don't really know yet. It depends on whether I go commercially published or self-published. If I commercially publish, it's uh, certainly another year and a half away. If I self-publish it, mm-hmm. I could have it out you know, early next year. So I haven't mm-hmm. decided which path I'm going down. I hope artists also happen to fall into part of the audience who'll be reading that book because as an artist, you know, I come from an artistic background. I'm an artist. My parents um, are as well. Is, you know, my mom in particular paints these very sophisticated, actually they're called meticulous paintings. And by definition, it takes a long time. But most critical part, as she indicates, is you have to know when to stop. Mm. And as an artist, in particular, uh, oil painters, you know, all these meticulous strokes. It is really, it would differentiate like basically a very good, a pretty good artist to an extraordinary one is you have to know when you need to stop painting. Mm. And it's a, it's a really amazing concept, you know, and I watched my mom in action and I, somehow that theme just kind of echoes what you're describing here. And even with my podcast, there is that excitement to go through, this is going to be great. We're going to have a website, go through show notes, and four or five hours later, it's basically ready. But part of me is saying, no, it's not ready. This is not nearly good enough. I need to tweak the CSS and the visual design on the site. And really very quickly, um, when you're in the, the midst of all things, you lose track. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's true with a lot of issues in life. And what are, what are some of the, um, what is a good question for that? How do you stop yourself? Um, for instance, maybe a, you know before you write the book, what are the, like one or two things um, that that you find helpful in in stopping yourself from doing that? And for instance, one of the things I did was Monday morning came and I was not happy with the podcast where it stood, and I said to myself, "I'm just gonna go ahead and publish it anyway." What is the worst that could happen? And imagine a lot of really bad things in my head when I would start writing them down. They become very silly. You know, and then of course that first uh, blog post I posted two weeks ago got seventy six unique shares on Facebook. Yeah, it's it's great. Uh, yeah. Um, but I find myself doing that all the time with little things in life. Um, I would definitely have to read that book. What are the? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think part of it is maybe how I'm wired. Mm-hmm. I am not a detail oriented person. <laughs> Good for you. I don't get into the weeds. I have people who will prove pretty much everything I do because mm-hmm. I don't trust myself mm-hmm. to have that eye to know the details. Now, I know some people who are in the details to the point where they can't focus on what's important. Mm. So I really just, I always ask myself, what is it that I do better than anyone else and what do I have to do? And I focus my energies there. Mm-hmm. And it's really amazing if you do that I mean, I'm a big believer in partnerships and getting other people to work with me, and I've got some great people that I work with. So the reality is, if I'm not creating something new, I don't have to work pretty much at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to prepare for my speech, and I've actually found ways of making that even faster, where the client, I give them some homework that they do, so I get back something very rich and very useful, mm-hmm. uh, but it doesn't take up a lot of my time. Mm-hmm. And so I can have a foot, and, and because I've do, been doing my speeches for so long and the technology I use, I can very quickly 
customize things. So if I look at what I do, it's very, very little in the scheme of things. Uh, so, and I think part of it is I like time to reflect. I love sitting in hot tubs. I love going to the beach. I like walking beaches. Mm -hmm. And those to me are really important because they help me get clarity about what matters. Mm -hmm. If I'm working 100 hours a week, it's so difficult to have any sense of what matters. Mm -hmm. It's that, that space that I think is really important. So for me, I'm always just asking myself each day, what's the one thing I have to do today? that I have to do that no one else can do that is really, really important. And I focus on that. Mm -hmm. And then everything else sort of gets done or doesn't get done. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's you know the way I do it. Uh, and again, I look at everything from the perspective of experiments. We, we put a, we created this mobile gaming app that I was telling you about. And uh, we, you know, we, I had my design for it. We designed it, it was built. Somebody else built it. They, you know, so their sweat energy, you know, building that thing. Mm -hmm. And now we're just doing some tests. We're just testing it out. Does it work? Doesn't it work? Mm -hmm. uh, the risk on my part was minimal. It's been my time, but it wasn't even a massive amount of time. I basically just articulated what I wanted to be. Someone else took all the risk. Mm -hmm. uh, and if it doesn't work, they're the ones who will lose out more than I will. Because for me, it's just my time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what I'm always looking at is, well, how do I partner with people and how do I design my life in a way that I really figure out what I have to do mm -hmm. and look, for me at the end of the day it's my innovation content and it is the way I deliver my innovation content and those are the only two things mm -hmm. that I do mm -hmm. what was that one thing you had to do today the one thing I had to do today was uh, I have some ideas for the new book that I, well obviously this was something I had to do today uh, it'd be hard to get somebody else to do this for me. But, but, but beyond this, the one thing that I had to do today, there's actually two things. One is uh, I had a, a piece of the book that I wanted to write today. Mm -hmm. And so, but I knew this was going to take some research. So I actually have done some research, got what I needed, and I'm now starting to you know, work on that one piece. And then the other one is we're working on a TV show and I have a call with the, the producer and the production company. And, and uh, beyond that, there's nothing that I have to do and probably nothing that I will do today. Mm -hmm. That's great. Knowing when to stop, when to start, when to stop. And Do you wake up in the morning and have your spiritual intent set? Um, you know, some, for some people it's a form of meditation. Uh, I know many people don't, um, but how do you sort of reset yourself or do you every morning? If I look at something I've been trying to do as a habit or discipline, it's been whether it's truly meditation or not, it's just quiet time. Mm -hmm. Like quiet time where I, you know, either put on some headphones and listen to some funky meditation music or listen to some, uh, you know, some types of visualizations. Now picture this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what I'm trying to, but I'm still, even that, something which I think could only take five or ten minutes, I'm not really good at even doing that as a habit. Mm -hmm. uh, so I reset myself I mean part of part of my reset process is just having a deep 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 appreciation for everything in my life mm -hmm. uh, I think that might be one of the most important aspects mm -hmm. is you know to one's happiness because I'm a big believer that expectation is the source of all disappointment and dissatisfaction mm -hmm. and it's not to say you don't want to have expectations 
But if you swap expectations for appreciation, mm-hmm. then you have a completely different outlook on your day and your life. And so that is one thing which I think I'm pretty good at is mm-hmm. like at down moments, I just think to myself, holy moly, how, you know, mm-hmm. how did I get all this? Mm-hmm. And I just feel blessed to have the life that I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's my main reset. And then there's little things that I do from time to time if I'm, if I'm good about it. Mm-hmm. I love that answer. Um... No, I haven't uh, disliked anything you said, and I don't mean a sense. It's, I feel like in, in closing, as a closure, that's something people people remind themselves. Most of the people I know remind themselves. Um, but to also hear from other people and to reassure that that's, I think that's the right approach to life. Um, all chaos aside, and I think that's when um, to set, I think, successful people apart from people who are always complaining and always seeking for something else that they don't have and there's no end to that so I really well, like I, that so the research I was doing today yeah. is, is some research and you know one of the things which uh, some people believe some people don't believe mm-hmm. is that uh, there is you know people with more money are happier so mm-hmm. I'll ask you do you think people with more money are happier oh definitely not definitely not yeah, okay definitely not. <laughs> well interestingly <laughs> the, the science proves that people with more money are happier it, but then there's the, you well, know, diminishing return. No, it's actually what it is. But here's <laughs> here's the this this comes back to something I said before, which is causation versus correlation. Mm-hmm. People, and I stated it in a very specific way, people with more money are happier. That doesn't mean money was the cause of happiness. Mm. The research that I was studying shows that, and I've read this research before. I was just sort of reacquainting myself with is that actually happiness causes wealth. Your outlook and attitude towards life, how you see the world, will create opportunities for you. Mm-hmm. And so if you are, and it doesn't mean there aren't exceptions to the, every mm-hmm. rule, there's an exception. But mm-hmm. what I really believe is that part of the reason why I've been so successful is because I've been fortunate to have the family that I have, which has been supportive and loving and caring, that I've had the opportunities that I've had. I could go to a great university. Mm-hmm. Uh, started off right out of college with an incredible career at Accenture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've, I think I've always maintained a really positive yet realistic outlook on life. I mean, very grateful. Have uh, And so I think people, what happens is if you're somebody who people like to be around because you have a great vision or you're exciting or you're optimistic, people want to be around that. Mm-hmm. And when people want to be around that, people want to work with you mm-hmm. and people want to partner with you and people want to learn from you people want to help you mm-hmm. and that to me is what I find really fascinating is the, the the keys to success are often not just hard work part of it it's mm-hmm. mastery and performance mm-hmm. mastery is being good at what you do the performance is how you appear to the outside world mm-hmm. and I think the way you appear to the outside world is also how you appear to yourself in your inside world mm-hmm. and so you know, sort of a long-winded way of saying that, I'm a big believer that our outlook on life, the people we hang out with, um, and our just our belief structures are what give us, and this is not the law of attraction and the secret and all that, uh, but this is really very much about we do cause mm-hmm. what happens. And... Mm-hmm. You know, happiness can cause... We have control over certain things. We have more control than we think. Mm -hmm. 
And if we believe we're victims and we believe the world's out to get us and we're closed vest and we don't want to share anything with people mm -hmm. and we don't want to let people in on our secrets and, you know, we push people away, well, mm -hmm. people aren't that interested in seeing us be successful. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're doing something cool, and, and this is where I also think creativity comes into play, is people also like to do something that no one else is doing. They want to be part of something new. There's something, it's risky, so they don't want to do it on their own. Because that, that's, that's, that's not the way we're wired as human beings. But if someone else is doing it, they can be part of something where the risk to them is small, but it appears that the creative reward is huge. Mm -hmm. People get very excited about that. And so that's why I think creativity, not for the solution, but for the ability to engage people, mm -hmm. is so valuable. I feel like I need to steal some lines uh, from my podcast. And one of the things I realized for me to take on a project completely on my own or even just with one other person like my mom's creating really interesting artworks somehow it took me a long time I was very hesitating and to your point it felt risk-taking whereas it's so much easier to talk to other people people from different backgrounds different industries uh, we've all walked through you know a different path of life and um, it's so fascinating and it makes this project so much more natural and easier um, if nothing else, it's so much easier to talk about other people than to actually talk about myself. Mm, yes. Yeah, it's it's uh, fascinating. And, you know, I realize that I've taken up all the time you have this afternoon. Oh, no, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. But I want to make sure that the audience um, at this point, you know, it's a, I think the decision is very clear. You're very searchable on Google, but I wonder if you could um, curate a path if people want to start learning more about you. Um, whether your books, your blogs, um, what should they do next? I would say, obviously, a website's a good place to go. So Stephen with a P-H, stephenshapiro.com, so S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-H-A-P-I-R-O.com. Uh, go to the website. Uh, that will, at least, if you go to the blog, I have seven or 800 articles there that I've written over the years. I've been blogging for 10 years now. Uh, even some of my videos, you know, if you go to the website, there's some videos that are out there where you can very quickly learn, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of my, my beliefs. You know, like you mentioned, the TEDx NASA video, mm -hmm. it's six minutes long. It's an entire speech in six minutes. So you can get a sense of at least one slice of my innovation philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as books go, you know, I, I would say depending on who you are and what you want, uh, Best Practices Are Stupid, which is my latest book, uh, is really for the corporate innovator. So if you're in a company and you want to innovate, that's great. But my two favorite books are actually Personality Poker and Goal-Free Living because they talk to the individual as well as you know larger organizations. And mm -hmm. uh, I think Goal-Free Living is actually my favorite because I just believe that we have an opportunity to live a life differently than society says we're supposed to. I love that. And that's what I like. Yeah, I, um, that's one book, to be honest, I will need to get to. And that I feel very motivated after this conversation. Growing up in China and a very traditional culture, um, you know, we're really very conditioned and trained and educated in every way to, you know, school in particular, go to school at a certain time. Even, you know, I remember meeting someone in my grade who's a year older or a year younger. That's you know, that is introduced so much like detriments to them and then you start picking on them and all that and all of a sudden after graduating from college a certain job you need to have, how much you're supposed to make, um, uh, you know, getting married, have kids and all that I feel like really wears on people. Yeah. 
um, I think it really, to a certain degree, blocks people. Like, for instance, I know I want to have kids, but I really want to kind of just harness the next couple of years to, to do something like this. And I made a decision that I want to choose myself, you know, and I think that's part of the goal-free living theme as well. And I choose myself and I choose to work on this project. And I love that. Yeah. Well said. Thank, thank you. Uh, so thank you so much. I had so much fun. I Great time. To listen to more episodes of the Face World podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or visit faceworld.com. That is F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D, where you can find show notes, links, other tools, and resources. You can also follow me on Twitter at FaceWorld. Until next time, thanks for listening.